0: Here's a really special deal on a great product from our friends over at Fresh Pressed Olive Oil Club. You can now receive a $39 bottle of artisanal fresh pressed oil free if you just pay $1 to help cover shipping. And there's nothing else you must buy now or ever. It's a wonderful opportunity because with olive oil, my number one rule is the fresher the better. That's because the olive is a fruit and olive oil is actually a fruit juice. Like any other fruit juice, extra virgin olive oil is at its glorious peak of freshness, flavor, and nutritional potency when fresh squeezed. And that's what's missing with so many supermarket olive oils. After sitting on the shelf for months or even years, they've lost their freshness and can't compare with just pressed Evu shipped direct from the new harvest. Here at Milk Street, we really like these oils' vibrant, grassy flavors, as well as the intoxicating aroma, just like a garden in a bottle. Prove it yourself with no obligation to buy anything ever. For your free $39 bottle direct from an award-winning artisanal farm, go to getfresh177.com. That's getfresh177.com. One last time, getfresh177.com.
1: A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com.
0: Cozy also offers a great range of coffee tables, washable rugs, wall shelving, and credenzas. Their outdoor collection features high-quality, modular sofas and sectionals made for outdoor living. You can visit their store in Toronto. Cozy now has expanded from an online market to their first in-person space, or go directly to their website at cozy.com. That's C-O-Z-E-Y dot com. Transform your living space today with Cozy. Visit Cozy.com to start customizing your furniture today. Hi, this is Christopher Kimball. Thanks for downloading this week's podcast. You can go to our website, 177milkstreet.com, for our recipes, culinary ideas from around the world, or our latest cookbooks. Now, here's this week's show. This is Milk Street Radio from PRX. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball.
2: I come from a troubled place that shows great promise
0: and a place of great triumph, too. That was John T. Edge. He's author of The Potlucker Papers, a food history of the modern South. You know, the South has always been about her people. For example, Georgia Gilmore, a cook who brought together the Kennedys and the Kings and also Zephyr Wright, Lyndon Johnson's cook, who helped him understand the pain of segregation. John T. Edge tells their stories, and also the story of America, through the culinary history of the South. I'll be speaking with John T. a bit later, but before that, Rome-based reporter Nancy Greenlease has the story behind how the Italian mafia is trying to muscle in on the Italian bakery business. Nancy, how are you? I'm good, Thanks. I would have thought the uh, bread business in Italy, even southern Italy, would be very good. Uh, You know, it's like France. People like their baked bread every day. But you... I found out, actually, there's some problems in the bread business, right?
3: Exactly. And I had the exact same thought, Chris. I, I read that bakeries were closing. I thought, how can that happen in Italy, where everyone goes to their corner bakery to buy bread, fresh hot bread, every single day? I thought, how is this possible? And I started doing a little bit of research and came upon the fact that Italians are buying half as much bread as a decade ago. So, of course, part of that is a change of eating habits. But particularly in southern Italy, what you run into is mafia extortion because not only is it difficult for this corner bakery to keep going against the major chains but they have the mafia there with its hands in the dough so to speak
4: hm. bakeries are coming to an end soon they won't exist anymore all the bread will be mass-produced since there won't be bakers making artisan
0: bread So what choice do you have? You're running a small corner bakery and someone says, you know, pay us 50 grand a year or pay us 30 grand a year. And these are businesses that can't afford that kind of money. So do any of them stand up to to this extortion?
3: Well, they're placed, as you said, in a very difficult position because someone comes knocking and says, look... We'd like you to contribute <laughs> a, a, a sum every month to protect you. Now, pizzo is the Sicilian word for protection money, that monthly sum that you're paying to get protection that you don't need, but keeps the mafia from burning down your business, in essence. dio pizzo which means Goodbye Pizza was founded in 2004 by a group of really young 20-something Palermo residents who thought, this is ridiculous. We can't go on like this. And their idea was to unite businesses together because the more, the better. There's, There's power in numbers, and they've been able to encourage business owners to not cave in. And that's easier said than done. But quite a few are stepping up and saying no, and a D.O.P., so they're uh, providing assistance to businesses that want to file charges and help them get the real legal assistance, the real legal protection that they need, that unfortunately the state wasn't providing except in very rare cases.
0: Uh, you interviewed uh, a 70-year-old baker, Francesco D'Aloisi, uh, who had worked at the Il Fornaio Bakery. Uh, w- what was his story?
3: Oh, he's a wonderful man, just a real character, and and he uh, is the owner of Il Fornaio, which means the bakery <laughs> in Palermo, and he has been working in the bread industry since he was nine years old. He would get up and go and help with the bread makers form the bread loaves, and then once the bread was baked and ready to go, he'd take it on his bicycle and distribute huh. it in the neighborhood, so he's been working with bread for his entire life and has moved forward with this wonderful family bakery one of the bakeries that had a a, a very upsetting disturbing run-in with the mafia a few years back
5: we received a telephone call actually i personally received this anonymous call he suggested that the bakery stop making certain products i took it as a joke
0: And this means disturbing, as there was some some violence associated with
3: this? Ah, well, so they wanted them to stop selling this particular product. And Michele D'Aluisi, Francesco's son, said no, absolutely not. Well, the next call he received was from the fire department.
5: (laughs) The bakery was on fire and would have burned down in no time it was a horrible experience. Not only did they set fire to the bakery, but they also tried to burn down our house.
0: Now there was another baker, Valerio Bacano, who also resisted the uh, extortion, is that right?
3: Yes, Uh, Valeria is a a pastry maker, in fact. She makes wonderful cakes, really exotic cakes. She had worked in her, her husband's family's pastry shop, They were asked to pay Pizzo, which is protection money. And his family went ahead and paid it for years and years. It was wrong, and we knew it. But we also knew that if we didn't pay, the Mafia might take it out on on our son, our business, our car, or, or even take our lives. We really lived in fear because we were just really scared of all these kind of things happening. Well, she went out on her own and she decided that no way was she going to pay. And uh, she signed up as a member of a D.O. Pizzo and uh, put that s- sticker up on her door that said that she doesn't pay pizza, which is somewhat like the sticker that says, dogs can't enter this restaurant. <laughs> but it does send a sign. It seems like a silly thing, but it sends a sign saying, I don't pay pizza, which is also important for the residents to see because the residents also... They want to buy their products from companies, from small producers that are not paying pizza. They don't want to help support the mafia.
0: So, where does this all end? You think that over time, the mafia will move on to an easier, more productive category of business from bakeries because the bakeries eventually will unite
3: well that is the hope of a Dio Pizzo not not just bakeries but as uh, the wine producers, uh, the citrus industry, if more businesses join up and say that they will not pay Pizzo then the mafia will be forced to look elsewhere
0: Nancy thank you very much
3: thank you very much
0: That was Rome-based reporter Nancy Greenlees. You're listening to Milk Street Radio. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. As always, all of our shows are available on iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, and Spotify. Now it's time to take some of your questions with my co-host, Sarah Belton. Of course, she's the star of Sarah's Weeknight Meals on public television, also author of the book Home Cooking 101.
4: Sarah, are you ready? I am looking forward to it. Hello, welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling?
6: Hi, this is Marty from Ithaca, New York.
4: Oh, nice. That's where Cornell is.
6: It is. It's on the opposite hill.
4: I think Marty
0: should have a
6: radio
4: show. <laughs> Marty, you do Great. have an A-plus voice.
6: Yeah. Well, thank you. That's what I do.
4: Uh, oh Are you kidding me? See?
6: Really? I'm a singing teacher. Oh. Okay. Well, we could we, tell.
4: We, we're so smart here, aren't we? <laughs> <At> any rate, <laughs> how can we help you?
6: I have two questions. There are things one reads in cookbooks all the time, and I have no idea why. Number one. When you make bread, you put it in a bowl, you punch it down, and you let it rise a second time. Why? Why can't you just put it in the pan and let it rise once?
0: Excellent question. First of all, you want to have an even texture holes in the finished bread. If you let it rise once and then just bake it off, you're going to end up with very uneven texture. Secondly, you want to develop flavor and structure in the bread. And so you need to punch it down gently. When it says punch down, by the way, you should deflate it gently, not punch it down.
4: Yeah, I know punching down is so violent Uh, and not good.
0: And by the way, if you're doing pizza, for example, which is a flatbread, you don't let it rise twice. You know, you you let it rise and then you shape it into balls. Do it. Yeah, Yeah. because it's you don't have the same textural structural problem. So you need structure, you need flavor development, and you want an even texture. So those are three reasons I can think of. Sarah,
4: Sounds no, I completely agree.
0: We agree for a while. Okay. Holy moly. <laughs> okay. okay. I have some breads that
6: I punch them down and they never come back.
0: I have that problem too sometimes. How warm is your kitchen?
6: I do the, you know, turn the oven on, oh, count to 10, trick. and then put it in.
0: This is interesting. So what? Uh, this is like a teaspoon or two teaspoons of yeast? How much yeast for how much flour?
6: The usual, you know, one packet. Right. Next.
0: Two and a quarter teaspoons.
6: Yeah. And then you turn the oven on, yeah. count to 10, turn the oven off, and
0: put it in the oven to rise. Uh, yeah, you know, but no, I bet be your oven's... You're, you're gonna I think ki- you killed the you yeast. You killed the yeast. Okay.
4: The reason it rose is because there's yeast in there and you put it in a hot environment, so it started to rise. Right. But then, essentially, the yeast died, which is why you didn't get a second rise. Dough will rise even in the refrigerator. You know, if if you're trying to do it fairly quickly, just find a warmer place in your house, but I wouldn't do the oven. I think it's too unreliable. Yeah, about 130
0: or 140, the yeast is killed. Mm-hmm.
4: Except rapid rise is not. What?
6: Okay.
0: Rapid rise, what, what do you mean? You can go to 400, it's still a lot? No,
4: but it could go to 130 or 140. That's the hot oh. water you put in there. Right. But at any rate, I think not, that's not in the oven. Yeah. But you now have a second question.
6: Yes. When you do a pie and put on a top crust, it always says dot with butter, then put on the crust. Why
0: does one dot with butter? You don't have to.
4: I think the logic is more butter is better. But in my experience, I don't, do I don't either. I think that, I don't either. Yeah, good. No. So we're all on the same team with that one. Yep.
6: So we can blame it on the 1950s dairy board,
4: or you could blame it on Julia Child, who always thought more butter was better.
6: Oh, now wait a minute. She was delightful. Oh,
4: oh, believe me, I adore the woman.
6: I met her back in the oh early 90s.
4: And tell us what happened. Let me guess. She asked you all about you.
6: No, I was working at Cornell at the hotel school. Oh. And was in charge of the rare books collection and she wanted to see the rare books.
4: Go that on. would be so It'd Julia. Be, that would and then we, what happened?
6: We spent about twenty minutes with the rare books. Huh. And just had a ball. And then she was out of there.
4: Oh. <laughs> well, that's wonderful. You got to spend some time with her. She was pretty incredible. She was
0: delightful. Yeah. Very nice. Especially when she talked politics and drank wine. But Yes. Well, I'm well, sure you we did. didn't have
6: that opportunity in the humidity-controlled <laughs> room, no. no. No, no. I guess not. No. Well,
0: at least you got to spend some time with it, which is terrific. All right, well. So forget the butter and rise twice and don't use the oven.
6: Right. Okay. Okay, Marty. Right, we'll give that a try. I'm making some bread this afternoon. We'll try that out. Thank you much. Yeah, yeah, thank you. Take care.
0: Thanks for calling. Okay. Bye-bye. This is Most Your Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. If you have a pressing culinary question, give us a call one eight five five four two six nine eight four three. One more time. Eight five five four two six nine eight four three. You can also email us anytime at questions at milkstreetradio dot com.
6: Hi, this is David from Decatur, Georgia.
4: Hello. And how can we help you?
6: So I want to talk about cooked salsas. And part of my frustration has been in buying anything from the store I feel like everything tastes like canned tomatoes, and the tastes are flat, and the textures are flat, and I love fresh salsas, but I'm looking for something that can last a little longer in the fridge, but still having a, you know, depth of flavor and flavors that pop and textures that pop.
0: This goes down the category of you can't have it all. Ah! That's why salsas aren't cooked, usually. I mean, they'll char an ingredient like tomatoes like in Mexico like okay. Comal or something. But you can char over gas flame or on the grill if you want to add flavor. But you don't really cook a salsa. And you, you want to cook it to preserve it for a longer time, right? Yes. Well, look, salsas only take five or ten minutes to throw together. I mean, they're very simple. And if you make them fresh, they have a nice acid and crunch. But anything cooked is – that's a sauce. That's not really a salsa uh-huh. –
4: you know, it's so funny because I was just at the Lake Austin Spa Resort where I teach classes, and they serve the salsa. They have both the fresh and also the cooked. The cooked salsa seems to have more depth of flavor. They made it fresh there with fresh tomatoes and roasted them and pureed them and cooked them with other ingredients. But
0: why okay. is that a salsa?
4: I don't know. It's
0: not it, a salsa. <laughs> it's not, It's a sauce. Come on. Well, what did you like it?
4: We liked it very much. I'm telling uh. you, it had more depth of flavor than the fresh stuff. fresh stuff I love because of its freshness. You know, just uh, lime juice and tomatoes and onions and chilies. It's wonderful. But the cooked ones just had much more, I don't know, umami. What can I tell you? I don't want...
0: Would you take the umami and put it back in the closet? (laughs) There's too much umami going around. Well, Look, I think a salsa should be bright and fresh and acidic. And it pairs with something where it needs that light, fresh, acidic partner. So if you have You know, a stew, if you have something grilled, if you have something meaty, you want something light and fresh. You don't want a a umami sauce. I mean, that's great, but that's not a salsa. It's a different animal. Yes, you can char or roast one of the key ingredients, a pepper, for example, or a tomato. That's fine, but it's still the rest of it should be fresh, I think, not cooked, right? Okay. I should shut up and let Sarah answer your question. No, no,
4: I mean, listen, I am not a Mexican expert here, so... I would think that you could roast, you know, char your tomatoes, char all of your ingredients, and then just puree them and add some lime juice, and you're good to go. So your onions, your garlic, your tomatoes.
0: This is killing me. Your chilies. Salsa yeah, salsa's not pureed.
4: <laughs> <laughs> what? That's with a, well, with a, you know, you can pulse it. You don't have to puree it. Um, but, David, I'd say just go ahead and start with fresh tomatoes yourself. Just get really, really good fresh stuff.
0: and Just char it on the grill over high heat or in a cast iron pan. Chop it up and make a salsa. And,
4: but do the same for the because you'll get much more flavor out of the onion. Again, we're looking for depth of flavor. Yeah.
6: Well, I really appreciate uh, <laughs> your perspective and love your show. Okay. Thank you so much. Thanks, David. Thank you. He's yeah. out of here. He's yeah.
4: gone. <laughs> He's done with us. <laughs> All
6: right. Cheers. Bye-bye.
0: You're listening to Mill Street Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. In just a bit, I chat with John T. Edge. He's author of The Pot Liquor Papers, A Food History of the Modern South.
7: This is Jason Perkins again. Just want to say thanks to everyone at Allagash for sharing. You can try Allagash White at home, too. Head to Allagash.com locator to find Allagash White near you.
1: For 21 plus only, please drink responsibly. Allegash Brewing Company, Portland, Maine.
0: This is Milk Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. John T. Edge writes about the American South. His latest work, The Potlicker Papers, brings together a heady stew of politics, food, personalities, and also the history of civil rights to tell the story of the South through the eyes of its cooks, its food, and also its culture. From Shermanized steaks to Colonel Sanders, from Paula Dean to Georgia Gilmore, a cook and unsung hero of the civil rights movement, Edge redefines the meaning of food history. John T., how are you? I'm very well, Chris. Thanks. You know, Potlicker Papers... It's just a really interesting book. It's the story of civil rights told through the lens of food. It's, to some extent, the history of food in the South, especially in the last half of the 20th century. But one thing I I didn't think about was so interesting. There was a dividing line in 1964. There was the role of food in the African-American community in the South prior to that time. And then after the Civil Rights Act, things changed. Uh, Georgia Gilmore. She went into a store and the owner refused to sell her grandson a loaf of bread. Could you just tell us a little bit about uh, Georgia Gilmore?
2: So Georgia Gilmore
0: had worked as a midwife.
2: She had literally laid track on a railroad. Ms. Gilmore was a cook at the time the civil rights movement ignites in Montgomery in 1955. And she was a cook at a, at a downtown lunch counter. Um, Ms. Gilmore was at the very first meeting of the Montgomery Improvement Association wherein um, Dr. King and others elected to support Rosa Parks and to begin the bus boycotts and she supported that in the way she knew best as a cook. She cooked fried chicken and made sandwiches and sold them on the steps of Hold Street Baptist Church And she curated this group of women, and they called themselves the Club from Nowhere, and that gave them cover. And this club of of women with no names literally fueled the bus boycotts when black women and men refused to ride the segregated buses of Montgomery, and she um, and her friends— fuel the alternate transportation system of station wagons and fuel them literally with the gas for the cars, insurance, all that, by baking cakes and pies and frying chicken.
0: One of the other things in the book is you talk about these restaurants in people's private homes, and Georgia Gilmore had a very famous one, and that was sort of an underground economy. And her kitchen, saw Lyndon Johnson, Bobby Kennedy, Martin Luther King, but, uh, She she didn't back down. I mean, she just spoke her mind, right?
2: She spoke her mind, and there was kind of a democracy in the way she treated everyone. You know, this was an everyman's quasi-restaurant, and people gathered literally at her oak trestle table in her home. And they came to be treated like somebody's, you know, misbegotten son. I mean, that's the way she treated them. She— She knew the positions these folks held, and she respected them for their work and was a co-conspirator with them. I mean, she lived only a few blocks from King in Montgomery. She lived on the same street as Rufus Lewis, who organized the alternative bus transport system in Montgomery. She was part of the movement. She knew these people. She didn't have to kowtow. She didn't have to curry favor. She spoke her mind, and in you know, kind of her playful jest with them, she made them feel even more comfortable. They didn't want special treatment. They wanted fried pork chops and and collard greens and
0: cornbread. You know, I can really see Johnson, who was a very interesting character from Texas. You know, he used to put his arm around some of those Southern governors and in his drawl and just say, you know, we're going to get this thing passed, you like it or not. Uh, He was a great persuader and he passed the civil rights You know, agenda which Kennedy had set out, but never got through Congress, right?
2: Yeah, and Johnson, you know, right about in the early portion of the book, you know, he had a great relationship, a a really deep and profound relationship with Zephyr Wright, who had been employed by the family back in Texas, and and uh, you know, for Johnson, a character like Georgia Gilmore was familiar. She was Zephyr Wright transported to Alabama.
0: Well, Zephyr Wright, we should just say, was a cook for Johnson. And the story goes that Lady Bird asked him, as they were traveling through the South, to stop at a rest stop. And about 20 minutes later, Zephyr White, who was in the car with him, asked him to pull over uh, in the middle of a field, nowhere. And he got upset. He said, well, why didn't you just stop at the gas station with Lady Bird? And she said, well, blacks are not welcome.
2: Yeah, I mean, that that brings politics from the big picture to the small, focused moment. You know, it, it brought this grand struggle of the American Republic into focus in his own life, in his own living room. And that's kind of what America needed, too. They needed to understand that these big picture issues played out in their small towns, on their street, in their house. And Johnson recognized the power in that of kind of Uh, defining these as kitchen table arguments as well as um, grand arguments. And Zephyr Wright was the way he illustrated that. And he he used that story beautifully over time to serve the cause and to serve passage of the Civil Rights Act of 64.
0: Booker Wright uh, was a waiter at Lusco's Long Term. There was a May 1966 broadcast about Mississippi, and uh, he spoke his mind uh, surprisingly. He said, demeanor of the man, meaning the white man, the more you smile. I just thought that was an interesting moment. Could you talk about that?
2: Yeah. So Booker Wright was a waiter at Lusco's restaurant in the Mississippi Delta town of Greenwood. It was a cotton town. It was a town of black labor and white wealth. And Lusco's was the kind of across the tracks place where the gentry dined. And Booker Wright was the waiter of record. Booker Wright the waiter who sing-song the menu, the waiter who did this almost as repertory. You would go to Lesko's to hear Booker Wright sing-song the menu. So when this seemingly faithful retainer of White Greenwood spoke out on the NBC News and kind of gave voice to the janus face lie that he had lived, or been forced to live, coerced to live, that moment was so bold. This is Broadcast at the same time when Stokely Carmichael is in Greenwood chanting Black Power. This is the same summer when James Meredith is is shot on his march against fear across Mississippi. Booker Wright's voice in that moment was clarion, um, and for those of us who write about and think about food culture, there's a it's one of the best illustrations of the power of a waiter. You know a waiter to this, this kind of player in the pageant of Southern life. What he learned, what he observed, what he endured. And then when he steps up to speak, there's such power in his voice. And even today, that clip of Booker Wright, which you can find on the web or via a documentary called Booker's Place, that clip will just rip you apart. I, I, I've never seen more powerful footage.
0: So Civil Rights Act 1964, that didn't stop discrimination. Many restaurants became clubs with a five-cent initiation fee. Yeah. Uh, so they're private. Uh, and then there was a place called the Shady Nook Cafe run by a guy called Dinty Moore, who I gather is not related to the uh, canned stew, who who claimed and was proud of never having served uh, an African-American. So uh, things changed, but they didn't change in some ways, right?
2: That's right. I mean, you know, there was a, a number of loopholes that were exploitable in the Civil Rights Act of 64, and they included private clubs. And a place like Dinty Moore's worked on what they called a paper bag test, which is a, if your skin was lighter than the color of a paper bag, you gained admission. If it was not, you did not. Um, and it brings into question the notion of the role that restaurants serve. We, we often think about restaurants as clubhouses. I used that word a second ago. And we think about even the idea of the beloved community where great friends, where well-intended people gather and community is fostered. But what if people of ill will gather in a place? What if people who are um, devout segregationists gathering a place. It turns the whole idea of a restaurant and a community gathering place upside down.
0: One of the things I found shocking, I mean, I lived through it, but you say that in the late 50s, there are 180 million Americans, of, of which 40 million lived in poverty. You talk about you know, Robert Kennedy going through the Delta on tour, talking to kids who have molasses for breakfast or nothing for breakfast, and millions of people just didn't have enough to eat. This book, potlucker Papers, is is a reminder that fifty years ago, America was a, a very different country, right? Yeah, um,
2: that that um, that hunger that came to the fore. There's this moment of of discovery that America discovers the poverty in its midst, and that's a moment of reckoning for the nation. Um, it was for white politicians. Um, It was a moment of denial for black activists. It was a rallying cry. It was the impetus for the great society programs. It was at the end of Dr. King's life, you know, it marked a turning point where he pivoted from voting rights to economic rights and a drive towards justice defined
0: by economic justice you talk a lot about some of the the fast food that started in the south popeyes um th- this was <laughs> a little interesting aside everyone thought it came from the cartoon strip as i did you say it came from popeye doyle from the movie the french connection
2: uh, really he said that i, I don't know yeah I, I think i think that's his conceit not necessarily mine
0: <laughs> Oh. Uh, In Johnny Reb's Dixieland, good order your steaks, Shermanized, burnt to a crisp, Lincolnized, warm and red-hearted, or stonewalled, rare. You you also talked about Jane and Michael Stern, who, of course, wrote Road Food in many uh, versions of that book, and they traveled around the country. They sort of reinvented food writing. You quote them, "'Sausages were turgid with juices, "'conversation was palaver, "'and sweet tea was salubrious.'" They were
2: intellectually curious about the American South and they found, you know, kind of working class food as an entree point to understanding the region. Their prose reads as though they were drunk on that romanticism. And looking back, you know, I juxtapose their reportage from the South with that of Calvin Trillin, who, um, you know, who traveled the region and, you know, Covered some of the same territory. He was interested in working class life and working class cooks and working class restaurants. But came to different conclusions about the places and the people.
0: And then you talk about Glenn Roberts of Anson Mills, who who drove around the South. Uh, a lot of people kept a small patch of corn to make cornmeal, and uh, he would he would go around and, and find interesting hybrids and varieties, and that's how he started the Anson Mills, right?
2: Yeah, I mean Glenn noticed that moonshiner corn grew differently, grew taller. Hmm. Um, And Glenn recognized that the old varieties were being saved by moonshiners. Moonshiners didn't want to stir the interest of revenue agents um, by going to the feed and seed store. Oh, that's right. So they saved their corn each year. And Glenn literally as he began his career would drive the back roads of South Carolina looking for moonshine corn. He literally kept a camp stove in the back and he would cook the corn to determine the sweetness mm. and you know the viability of the corn. His kind of single-minded zeal for grains has been a great driver in the larger kind of grain revival in the US. He's he's the guy.
0: Okay. You have 60 seconds to sell me on moving to the South. Here I am, a born and bred New Englander. So pretend you wanted me to move. Tell me why I should move. Why do you love the South? I mean, you obviously do. You know,
2: I love this place because it's the place from which I came, where I was born. I love this place because it's as complicated as any region I might imagine living in, I feel like I can never exhaust my curiosity about this place. And I feel like the the problems of this region are clearer than they are in other places. Like, mm. we recognize the, the horrors of our past, and the best of us are working to address them. And when you have that charge, when you have that burden on your shoulder, you can do better work. You know your purpose. And um, that drives me, you know. I work at the University of Mississippi. You can see, if I lean out my window, I can see looking left and right where two people died on this campus integrating this university. I come from a troubled place that shows great promise and a place of great triumph, too. You know, the horrors of a moment like that and I describe on our campus are balanced, are redeemed by the beauty of someone like Fannie Lou Hamer, um, the voting rights activist and agricultural activist. I come from a place of beauty and redemption. Come on down.
0: That was John T. Edge, author of The Potlucker Papers, A Food History of the Modern South. You know, history remembers the stories of the famous, but often overlooks, everyday lives, where the real business of history is transacted. Georgia Gilmore, a cook and civil rights advocate, once stood up in court and said, when I got on the bus and paid my fare, they didn't know Negro money from white money. Or Booker Wright, the waiter at Lisco's, who said, the meaner the man, of course he meant the white man, the more you smile." Or Zephyr Wright, a cook to Lyndon Johnson, who brought to life the pain of segregation, and that moved Johnson to push for the Civil Rights Act of 1964. Everyday people, yeah, but they're the ones who create history. This is Milk Street Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. Right now, we're heading into the kitchen to chat with Milk Street's Catherine Smart about this week's recipe. Catherine, how are you? I'm fine, thanks. How are you? I'm good. We're in the kitchens of Mill Street, of course. And uh, I was at Oleana. It's a restaurant in Cambridge a couple of weeks ago. Anna Sortun is the chef there. She cooks a lot of Turkish food. And one of the things on the menu was fatouche, which is nothing new. It's just basically a, a Turkish salad or Middle Eastern salad with toasted pita bread. But she did some interesting things with it. The, the flavors were different. The seasonings were different. And she had a couple of surprise ingredients in the salad. I thought it was so good. I brought it back to Milk Street and we worked on it, so uh, could you tell us a little bit more about it?
8: Sure, so as you mentioned, Fatouche is kind of ubiquitous in the Middle East. It's a really simple blend. There's usually tomatoes and cucumbers, and of course, dried pita. So we wanted to take that dried pita and make sure it was really flavorful and you know, a very uh, distinct part of the salad. So instead of just toasting it, we made oil with some spices and some garlic, and we brushed that on the pita before we baked it. So that was one thing. Secondly, we borrowed a trick from Oleana, and that is using pickled grapes. Now, that might sound kind of wild, but it's just grapes that you soak in a little bit of cider vinegar. For
0: just a few minutes, right? Yes, it's a
8: quick pickle, um, just takes a few minutes, and it adds this really kind of bright, acidic, almost like a succulent note that's a little bit different.
0: Now, when I was there, I noticed there was a spice, which used a lot of sumac, which a lot of people have never used before. It has a a very... uh, sort of wild, grassy, almost lemony taste to it. And then she also used pomegranate molasses. So before everyone stops listening to the show right now, (laughs) uh, could you just talk about those two ingredients?
8: Sure, so first of all, they're becoming much more available. You'll find both sumac, which is having a real moment right now as a spice. You'll find it in a lot of grocery stores, of course, Middle Eastern markets, but you can always order it online. And it's the same with pomegranate molasses, which is really just reduced down pomegranate juice. They're both unique, and they both add a kind of citrus tang. So the sumac has those citrusy notes that you can get just by sprinkling it on the salad. The pomegranate molasses adds a little bit of acidity, also some brightness. And it's not one of those ingredients that you buy and then it sort of withers away in your pantry. I mean, you can use it in dressings and marinades. It's great on some vanilla ice cream, Um, so I'm I'm a big fan.
0: I finish a lot of soups and stews with it, too, because it adds sweetness, but it also adds a little bit of depth. So how do we finish the salad?
8: So we finish it by making a dressing with that pomegranate molasses, a little olive oil, uh, some yogurt, and then some fresh dill.
0: Catherine, thank you very much. Instead of a boring green salad, we have a fatouche, courtesy of Oleana in Cambridge.
8: Thanks, Chris. You can find our recipe for fatouche, as well as other Milk Street recipes, at 177milkstreet.com.
0: This is Mill Street Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. After the break, more of your questions, dilemmas, and catastrophes with my co-host, Sarah Moulton. You know, I grew up with Vermont farmers who made do with tools they had on hand. A hammer, pliers, uh, and baling twine, of course, for most jobs. When I became a cook, however, I found that having just the right knife, or maybe the perfect carbon steel skillet, made all the difference. Available front row massaging seats, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. You know, wonderful pistachios have become my go-to snack. Now, I could list all the health benefits. They're a good source of protein, fiber, and unsaturated fats. But for me, flavor comes first. And that's why it's pistachios, not peanuts, in our household. Wonderful pistachios come in a variety of flavors and sizes, including sea salt and vinegar, chili roasted and smoked barbecue. Check out wonderfulpistachios.com to learn more. That's wonderfulpistachios.com. Hold
3: up.
0: This is Mill Street Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. Now it's time to take some of your calls, and uh, Sarah Moulton is with me. Sarah, you're, you look uh, bright-eyed and bushy-tailed. Are you ready?
4: I am, Chris. I am so ready.
0: Welcome to Mill Street. Who's calling?
1: This is Nicole from Manakwa, Wisconsin. How can we help you? My family likes yogurt-based curry sauces, but I have bad luck with the yogurt separating anytime time I try to make a heated sauce. So what are your tips for adding yogurt to sauces without it separating?
0: Uh, It depends what kind of yogurt are you using.
1: Well, I've tried a lot of different varieties, and I can't seem to find anyone that works for me.
0: I think regular full-fat yogurt probably is the best. I know that we've had some problems with Greek yogurt because it's strained, and it's about the casein, the protein, which when it's exposed to heat, you get a lot of interactions, it denatures, and it starts to separate out and curdle. So if you're going to use yogurt, I think the best thing to use is just regular full-fat yogurt. I think that's right.
4: I was going to make another suggestion, but you may not want to go this route. If you thicken your sauce with a little bit of flour, it will stabilize the situation so the yogurt won't curdle.
1: I've heard to put flour into the yogurt. I've tried that before, actually mixing a little flour into the yogurt.
4: Well, that I actually haven't done. That's an interesting idea.
1: I didn't care for the taste. But no, I've because tried the, again. in
4: that situation, you probably wouldn't simmer it enough to get rid of the raw flour taste. But I'm also wondering if, you know, let's say you had some potatoes in there or something, you pureed the sauce so it had some of that starch from the rice or the potatoes in it, that that might stabilize the yogurt, too, if you didn't want to go the flour route, You could also use cornstarch or arrowroot. I feel pretty sure that any one of those starches would stabilize it. Cornstarch and arrowroot don't have the same floury taste as flour.
0: Okay. Well, I, I guess my question, though, is are you topping something with yogurt? or you want to whisk it in for thickening or flavor enhancement.
1: The problem comes in when I try to use to make a sauce where yogurt is the base of oh, it. So I see. a yogurt sauce that has some spiced butter or something along those lines and so we're talking about a good amount of yogurt in the sauce.
0: Well, a lot of the yogurt sauces around the world are not heated. Yeah. They're just room temperature or cool and then you add spices or other things to them and serve them along or on top of food. But I think heating yogurt Because what happens is all those proteins, they break apart and then they start to come together in curdles. They start to attract each other. So I I think heat's always going to be a problem. So room temperature yogurt, seasoned yogurt is a great topping, but a yogurt-based sauce that's heated is going to be problematic.
4: Unless there's starch in there.
1: So how does the starch change that relationship with the protein?
4: Geez, I don't know. I'm not a scientist. I just know that I've done it and it's worked.
0: I think what happens is heat breaks the droplets of the protein apart and then they can come back together in clumps. I assume that the starch stabilizes that structure so that they don't break apart. Into pieces and then they can form together.
4: The only dairy products that you can boil actually is creme fraiche, which is somewhat acidic, and heavy cream. You can't boil any other liquid dairy product without having starch in there to begin with. So I've used starch when I say wanted to add low fat milk or buttermilk because you need something to bind it. Okay. Yeah. So add it earlier on in the process. If you didn't like the flavor when you combined it with the yogurt, that's because it probably tasted like raw flour. Add it earlier on when you have some fat in there, add it to whatever fat and vegetables are in there and stir it, you know, to cook it a bit. A general rule is one minute for every tablespoon of flour. Then you'll get rid of that floury taste when you add the yogurt.
0: So try that, uh, some starch or just don't heat it. But yes. I, you need a binder. Yeah.
4: Okay, great. I will try those.
0: Thanks. Thanks for calling. Take care. Thank you
1: so much. Bye-bye.
0: Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling?
1: This is Heather in Cincinnati. How are you? I am wonderful. How are you?
0: Good. How's the five-way chili?
1: It is awesome. I am a huge fan of the chili. Even though I'm not from here originally, I
0: love it. So is someone going to get to six-way and seven-way, or is it stop at five?
1: Oh, no. We have six-way if you add, like, jalapeno poppers.
0: Oh. Oh, See, I knew. Jalapeno poppers. That shows how old I am. I'm still stuck on the five-way. Wow. Yummy. (laughs) Anyway, I like that. And, and Dr. Pepper, you have to have a Dr. Pepper. With you, oh, My personal, anyway. How can we help you?
1: Well, um, first, I have to say, I'm so excited to talk to you. I've watched you both on TV for many years, so I'm very excited. My dad watched Sarah when I was a kid, so I was like, oh, my gosh.
0: We, we were actually on television um, together once. Once. We went, it was back in the
8: pie, 80s.
4: Pie dough. No, it was not in the 80s. I started 70s. on the Food Network in 96. Oh, okay. So it's probably 97. Or I might have had you in the first year. You never know. Okay. Well,
0: how can we help you?
1: <laughs> My husband is allergic to eggs. I'm always looking for creative ways that I can make him things that I love to eat. And sometimes it's difficult. And the two places where I've had no success in finding a good substitute are crab cake and meatloaf. And I just wondered if you guys had any ideas for sure. how I could finally make those
0: dishes for him without using eggs. Yeah, just use a panade, a couple slices of white bread, get rid of the crust, tear into pieces, put in a bowl, add a little milk or cream, mash it up till you get a nice paste. It takes about a minute. That'll work for what, a couple pounds of ground beef, for example, for meatloaf. It's for hamburgers, you do the same thing, or meatballs, and it binds it together and should also keep it pretty moist. Sarah, do you think that would actually substitute? You might have to use a little bit more if you substitute for eggs, right? Yes.
4: Yeah, I, I think you might.
0: Uh, yeah, I might go to like 3 or 4 slices of bread for 2 pounds of meat, but that should do it.
4: Well, you know what also be good is a grated parmesan or Reggiano. Really? Yeah, but it makes everything better
0: cheese. So so you you don't notice that it falls apart because it tastes so good? No, no, no. You can
4: add that as well because it's, you know, you know how dry it is. So it's a bit of a binder from that that. point of view. The other thing I was going to suggest would be maybe some pureed white beans. Beans of some kind. Yeah.
0: Well, Panad's a slam dunk.
4: Well, but I will say this. I have made some uh, zucchini burgers, quote unquote burgers, like falafel, Mm -hmm. where there's chickpeas in them and what binds it is the chickpeas. Really? Pureed. Yeah. Oh, okay. So, okay, but, but that's not me. Love so.
0: Yeah. Any
1: ideas on crab
0: cakes? Same thing. Crab cakes with a panade are fine.
4: Just or just bread okay. oh, crumbs. Bread crumbs. Bread crumbs. I think would help.
0: What happens is you get a great. Essentially, you get a gelatin with the bread and the milk, and it binds everything together. So I would use that for crab cakes.
1: Huh. That's great. Thank
0: you so much. I'm so excited. Okay, well, you'll
4: Heather. be excited if it works. Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> you have to go Heather. try it. <laughs> yeah. Report back. I
1: have Meatloaf in probably in like eight years, so I'm kind of excited just to try Oh, anything. Of
4: course, uh, absolutely, it's always better the next day. Yes,
0: <laughs> I love meatloaf. Yeah, Heather, give it a shot, let us know.
4: Okay, thanks for I calling. Will. Thank you so okay. much. All right, take Bye. care.
0: This is Milk Street Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. If you'd like your cooking question answered, give us a call 1 855 4 Bowtie. One more time 1 855 4 Bowtie. You can also email us at questions at milkstreetradio.com. Right now, it's time for this week's Milk Street Basic. Here at Milk Street, we're asking the question, why do we use commercial stock? You know, for 30 or 40 years, I've been going to the supermarket and buying chicken stock or beef stock and one occasion vegetable stock. And I look at the back of the can of the box and it turns out the chicken is not one of the top ingredients. In other words, they're creating something using chemicals, not chicken or beef. So here at Milk Street, we've decided that we could actually use water. Now think about it. If you're making a super stew and you have chicken, you have a lamb shoulder, you have beef, you have a beef shank, you have flavorful vegetables, at the end of the cooking time, you've effectively made your own stock. And guess what? It has a nice, clean, rich flavor. It's homemade stock that's part of your super stew. So, Our recommendation is next time you see a recipe that calls for commercial stock, especially if you're going to cook it for a while with a flavorful ingredient, use water instead. It's cheaper. It's better. It's summer travel season, of course, and what some of us dread the most about this time of year is airplane food. Dan Pashman of the Sparkful thinks he might just have
5: the answer. Dan Pashman, how are you? Good. How are you, Chris? Good. I I wanted to talk to you. I've been thinking a lot about airplane travel and eating on airplanes.
0: Let me stop you right there. Do you actually eat on airplanes?
5: I I do. I often bring my own food, but Mm. I I definitely eat on airplanes because I pack three peanut butter and jelly sandwiches, and I get on the plane, and the second I sit down in the seat, I have nowhere to go and nothing to do, and all I can think about is the fact that I have these sandwiches burning a hole in my bag, and when do I get to eat my sandwiches? When do I get to eat my sandwiches? And so I usually have eaten half my food before the plane even takes off.
0: Have you noticed the people sitting next to you, <laughs> the way they look at you uh, when you're eating your, your jelly dripping out of your sandwich?
5: <laughs> well, I got the system down pretty well. I don't usually drip jelly because I, I like a high peanut butter to jelly ratio oh. in my PB&J. But I may get some sticky peanut butter on my fingers and have to lick it off, which I'm sure the people sitting near me really enjoy. Oh, Lord. You're one
0: of those. <laughs> Years ago, I was coming back from Paris, and I bought a you know, salad, a saucisson, you know sausage salad, and eclairs and all that stuff. And the smell, I'm sure, went all the way back to row 120. Um, <laughs> I, I think the rule is if you bring your own food, fine, but it can't, it can't smell. There can be no odor. Right. And that's why peanut butter <laughs> and jelly is probably the ideal choice.
5: Do you have a, a go-to airplane food?
0: No, I've, I've decided not to eat on
5: airplanes, actually. Really? Even like a long flight? What if you're going to Europe? No, because
0: biggest, when you get to Europe, the first thing I do is eat. So, uh, <laughs> Well, you, you can't eat the airline food. I mean, that's just not going to happen. And you might bring some nuts or something. But no, I I don't eat on airplanes anymore. I mean, if it's a 15-hour flight, yes. but Right. Well, I have
5: some tips for you for how you can improve your airline eating experience. Maybe this will get you back to eating while flying. First thing, I think this is really interesting. Did you know that because of the way cabin pressure works, because of the pressure and because of the dryness of the cabin, your taste sensation when you're in a plane in the air is about 30% lower? Hmm. So, everything will be more bland in the skies, uh, which is why I recommend traveling with a little bit of salt and maybe some hot sauce, maybe some lime juice, things you can do to add to the food that you're given or that you brought that might have tasted great on the ground but doesn't taste so good in the plane. Okay, good point. The other thing that I think is interesting is that when you're on a plane, while taste sensation goes down, crunch sensation actually goes up. So, you really want to try to maximize crunch on an airplane. One thing that I like to do is like you take the pretzels or the peanuts that they give you with the drink cart and you crush them up. And then you can sprinkle those crumbled pretzels or peanuts on top of an entree or inside a sandwich to add crunch and salt.
0: I think that in the galley of every airline you ever travel on, there's a picture of you (laughs) And they say, look out, because this guy's going to be trouble. He's crushing up pretzels to put on his peanut butter and jelly. (laughs) Oh, boy. Okay. And and what's what's the other advice?
5: Well, the other thing I was going to say is, you know, people like to complain about about the indignities of air travel. But I think that one of the really good things is a cocktail on an airplane because, you know— the price has gone up a bit, but still, even if it's now, let's say $7 for for a cocktail, they give you the little airplane bottle of liquor, which is usually a drink and a half's worth of liquor. And then they're going to give you like, let's say you get, I don't know, a Jack and Coke. You're going to get a whole can of Coke. So now you can, you know, and then what you want to do is you want to ask for an extra cup of ice. And that way you can Make your, you get to make the drink yourself to exactly your desired ratio. You get extra soda or mixer on the side. You can add ice as you go. As you continue to, to mix the drink and make a second second one, you get fresh ice. And you can kind of play bartender there in your seat. And you get, you get an, a nice-sized drink for your money. So, so I'm sitting next to you,
0: and you right. have this paper bag which you unwrap, which makes a lot of noise. <laughs> you, you, you eat a sandwich, and then half an hour into the flight, you get some <laughs> potato chips from the drink cart— a Jack, a Jack Daniels and Coke or whatever. You sprinkle the crushed potato chips onto your sandwich, right? And have extra ice and enjoy your cocktail. Is that what's going on in the seat next That's to me?
5: That's right. I'm, aren't you feeling a little jealous now in this little scenario you've envisioned?
0: <laughs> I'm so glad I'm in a studio, not on a plane. Next <laughs> I, I, there was, on a, on a more serious note, though, I do find alcohol on a plane. I find I get a really terrible headache because you get dehydrated and the alcohol seems to go right to my head. is that a problem for you?
5: That's not so much a problem for me, but i I do find that I drink tomato juice on an airplane and nowhere else. Have you noticed that people people go for tomato yeah, juice on an I've airplane noticed that, yeah and, and and there are theories that that's also because of the lower taste sensation in the plane because it makes it it less acidic, and so the tomato juice will taste sweeter on an airplane than it would on the ground.
0: So you've answered the the ultimate question is why, why does airline food taste so bad? It's not because the food's bad. It's because you have a 30% decreased ability to taste. Is that right?
5: Well, I think it's probably some, of, some from column A, some from <laughs> column B. The airlines have done a lot of research on this, and they're now aware of this taste sensation issue, and they have been trying to create recipes to counteract it. But of course, unless you're flying in first class or business class, you're not, probably not getting a full-fledged meal. Some of the airlines now, you can buy a meal. So- They are becoming more aware of it and they are trying to do better. But I think what you got to do on the plane is you got to take matters into your own hands. You got to come with some seasoning. You got to take charge of the situation and you need to find your own deliciousness. Dan
0: Pashman, thank you very much. Uh, How to put the joy back into eating on an airline flight. Thank you. Thanks, Chris. Take care. That was Dan Pashman of the Sporkful Podcast. You know, I recently flew in Alaska Airlines, and uh, for the first time in years, I actually ordered the meal. I was intrigued to see a Middle Eastern word on an airline's menu. It was chicken shakshuka. Now, in this case, it was just chicken nuggets in a very bland tomato sauce. But it's progress. The world changes one meal at a time. That's it for this week. If you missed us, you can always subscribe and listen to Mill Street Radio and iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, and Spotify. Please don't forget to check out our brand-new website at 177milkstreet.com. You can download each week's recipe and learn more about Milk Street and subscribe to our magazine. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week.
1: Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is produced by Milk Street in association with
3: WGBH. Executive Producers Melissa Baldino and Stephanie Stender. Producer, Amy Padula. Production assistant, Carly Helmetog. Senior audio engineer, Douglas Sugars. Senior audio editor, Melissa Allison, with help from Vicki Merrick and Sydney Lewis. Audio mixing by Jay Allison at Atlantic Public Media. Production help, Debbie Padding. Theme music by 2Bob Crew. Additional music by George Brandall egglar Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is distributed by PRX.